The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. And so that was a case in 2013, all right? In 2011, there was a girl who moved out of her parents' house because she didn't like the rules they had established. And she moved in with a friend's mother, and then she came back to sue her parents to pay for her college education. And by the way, she won that lawsuit. My favorite is one in 2009 in Stephen Minor, Illinois, where a brother and sister sued parents. Although they were raised in a luxurious home, their father was an attorney, and they had a mother uh, who took care of them, they felt that she did an inadequate job of mothering. And so they sued her for emotional distress and bad mothering to support their claim of intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress. They cited examples such as these. She was a bad mother because she told them to be home at midnight. She was a bad mother because they did not receive care packages when they were in college. She was a bad mother because when the son was seven years old, she told him to buckle his seatbelt or else she would call the police. That one's a little bit fishy. They said she was a bad mom because she refused to take Catherine to a car show when she really wanted to go. They called her a bad mother because she failed to buy them the amount of toys that they wanted. And my favorite is she was a bad mother because they received a birthday card without any money inside of it. And so there's this trend happening in America where kids are starting to sue their parents. And when you look at that trend, at least when I look at that trend, I think, man, how ridiculous is this? How ridiculous is it that children are suing their parents? And I look and I think about the parents and I wonder what it would be like if I were one of those parents. What would it be like if your kids grew up and they decided to sue you because you didn't give them enough love? I'm guessing you would feel angry, betrayed, confused, probably deeply hurt. Well, today we are going to read about one of the most remarkable and most ridiculous trials in the history of the world. A trial in which the firstborn son, Israel, puts their heavenly father on trial for wrongdoing. It's a time when they put God on trial, accusing him of not being the loving father he had promised to be. If you would please turn to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. It's page 59 in the Red Bible and page 115 in the Children's Bible. Just as a way of recap again, uh, Israel was in bondage in Egypt. The Lord heard their cry. He came and rescued them out of slavery. He brought them through the Red Sea, which is the picture of our deliverance and our salvation, with the promise of taking them into the promised land, which is a picture of our glorification in heaven. But in between the sea and the promised land of Canaan, there is wandering in the wilderness, which is for us a picture of our sanctification. That is our growth in grace, our growing in the likeness of Jesus. And as we looked over the past couple of weeks in the midst of the wilderness, there are many times of refreshment, many times of joy, but there are also times of great trials. And what we see today is that Israel is fed up with God. They are fed up with the trials. They do not want another trial. They have finally come to the straw that broke the camel's back. And so they put God on trial. 
And so let's read together Genesis chapter 17. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Genesis 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, for the, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for the water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the now and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he came, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to your holy, inspired, inerrant word, we come confessing, Lord, that we are often ungrateful children. We so often focus on what we don't have instead of what we do have. And we come complaining and grumbling. And we even levy charges against you. God, we pray for your forgiveness and pray that this morning you would turn our hearts to rejoice in you, to delight in you, to run to you, and to trust you for your plan and for your provision. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. After Israel left the Red Sea, they went to Marah, where there was bitter water, and Israel grumbled against Moses. And then they went into the wilderness of sin, and they were hungry, and they grumbled again against Moses. Today, they are thirsty. There is no water to drink. And again, they grumble against Moses. Israel's grumbling might sound very familiar, very much like the previous chapters that we read in Exodus, but there is actually a significant difference between this instance and the previous instances. This point is a boiling point for the Israelites. In the original language of Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, a lot of the language used here is actually language used of a trial, of a court setting, which we'll see today. And so what we're looking at today is the people of God initiating a legal proceeding, a lawsuit against Moses and God. And so let's dive into this case. First, we see the prosecution. Prosecution are the people that are levying charges against another person and trying to prove the guilt of the other person. In this case, the prosecution are the elders of Israel on behalf of all the people of Israel. And they make three charges. One of the charges is directly against God himself. And the other two charges are against Moses, his servant. And yet when they charge Moses, it is also a charge against God because Moses is following the command of God and the direction of God. And so in a sense, all three of these charges are against God himself. The first charge we see in this passage is the charge of negligence. Look in verse one with me again. 
says all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. The people followed the Lord into the wilderness by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And they were going as the Lord had directed them. And they had anticipated and expected for the Lord to provide water for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it continues. Verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. This term quarreled is used in a legal context to charge somebody or to bring a lawsuit against someone. And so it says in verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You see, as they quarrel with God's servant Moses, they're testing the Lord himself. Now, the reality is the people were thirsty. The people needed water to survive. This was not a sin. This was not wrong. But as we have seen in the previous weeks, God brings his people into dry places that they might cry out to him and, and, and cry out for his provision and receive it as a loving gift from their heavenly father. But notice their tone in verse 2. They're not asking with humility. They're not forming a prayer meeting. They demand of God, give us water to drink. This demand reveals the heart of Israel. Israel believed that they were the master and God was their servant. They believed that they were the center of the universe and God existed to serve them. One time I was listening to the radio and I heard someone describe the difference between cats and dogs. And I thought it was a very adequate description. And they said, dogs are dogs. You feed them and you give them water and you pet them and you play with them. And in a dog's mind, a dog thinks, look, my master You know, they're petting me, they're feeding me, they're giving me water. They must be a God. But then you get to a cat and you give them water and you feed them and you pet them and you play with them. And and what they think is they pet me, they play with me, they feed me, they give me water. I must be a God. (laughs) And what you see here is the Israelites are like a bunch of cats. They thought they were set free to be served by God instead of remembering that they were set free to serve God. Their freedom was not to do and get whatever they wanted, but their freedom was to serve and worship the one true God, the Lord God. They were entitled. And since God didn't answer them exactly the way they wanted and the time they wanted, they accused him of negligence. You know, I wonder if, if we accuse God of negligence. We probably don't use that terminology, negligent. But when things don't go as planned, so often we are ready to blame God. Instead of going to him in humility, in prayer, asking God's questions and asking for his help and his strength and his wisdom, each of us must determine in our own mind, was God created to serve me? Or was I created to serve God? Was I delivered so God could worship me? Or was I delivered so that I could worship God? Was I set free so God could follow me? Or was I set free so I could follow God? If we confess this, if we confess that we are so often the center of our own universe, we will be an entitled 
and frustrated and angry people. And this is exactly where the Israelites were at. And so first charge is negligence. The second charge is treason. Look in verse 3. It says, But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, this is not the first time they leveled this charge against Moses, that Moses brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. But this is an absolutely ridiculous charge. If you are familiar with the story of Moses, Moses is in Midian in the wilderness. He's a shepherd. Life is peaceful. He's surrounded by his family, his wife, his kids, his in-laws. And it is a good life. And the Lord appears to him in a burning bush and calls him to go. And he tries to reject the calling several times, but he cannot reject the calling of God. And he goes into into Egypt to liberate Israel. And to think that Moses did all of this just to kill them is absolutely a foolish accusation. Nonetheless, Israel is charging Moses and God with with treason. They're grumbling that Moses and God had turned against Israel, that God was now actually against Israel and wanted to extinguish Israel from the face of the earth. Now, the irony of this charge of treason is that Israel is guilty of the very thing they're charging Moses and God of. Israel is committing treason because they have forsaken God. They have forgotten God. They have abandoned God. And they have demanded from God as if they were his master. Again, we would never use the word treason for our own life probably. But I wonder how many of us think that God is against us and not for us. That at one time when everything was good, we wrote Facebook something fantastic and wrote hashtag blessed. And yet when things go bad, we're convinced that God hates us, that he's against us, that he must be angry with us. Romans 8 tells us that if you are in Christ, God is never, ever, ever, ever against you. Even in the trials of this life, God is not against you. Even when he is enacting his loving, fatherly discipline, he is not against you. Even when, as Romans 8 says, we are like sheep being led to the slaughter, God is not against you. God is always for you in Christ Jesus. He is never against you. So those are the first two charges. The third is abandonment. Verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Israel couldn't understand how they could physically be thirsty and God could still be present. They couldn't understand how there could be trials in their life and God still be near. Throughout the Bible, God promises that he will always be with us. This is a promise that is reiterated time and time again in Genesis and even in Exodus. And as we studied last week, God is not the creators of trials and of brokenness and of sin and of pain, but that God weaves trials into our life for very specific purposes. God weaves trials into our lives to do something redemptive inside of us. In Deuteronomy 8.2, Moses says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, 
testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The wandering in the wilderness, the trials in the wilderness were revealing what was at the bottom of Israel's heart. And it was exposing cancerous rebellion that God might root it out by his provision and his love. We read this last week, but I think it's such a succinct summary. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God knows that when trials are woven into our life, we cannot remain unchanged. You know, when a trial is woven into your life, there are two places you will go. Your heart will either become bitter and angry and hard or become soft and tender and loving. The same sun that hardens the clay is the same sun that melts the wax. And God weaves trials into our lives to change us, to transform us, to mature us, and to grow us in our relationship with him. But for the Israelites, they were convinced, if there are trials in my life, it must be because God is absent. And so the accusations have been made. Israel was convinced of God's guilt and Moses' guilt, and they were ready to carry out the punishment. Look in verse 4. Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, this term, stone me, is something that maybe we would use in, in not so literal of a tent. We'd say, you know, the people were angry at me. They wanted to stone me. But for Moses, this is a very present, clear danger for him. This would have been the penalty for treason and for abandonment and for all of those things. They would have picked up stones and killed him. And so Moses' life was in serious jeopardy. And so what we see here in these verses is this twisted human logic trying to make sense of trials. And the Israelites figured, if there's trials in my life, it must be because maybe God is negligent. You know, he's here, but unwilling to do anything about it. Or maybe God is treasonous, that he wants to harm us. Or maybe there are trials because God is absent. He has abandoned us and left us to our own devices. These are the charges Israel makes when they face these trials. And these are the charges we so often make, even though we may not use that same terminology. Now, here's the thing. When Israel was making these charges against God, God had just brought them out of Egypt with the riches of Egypt. God had just brought them through the Red Sea and crushed their enemies in the Red Sea. God had just turned bitter water at Marah into sweet water for them to enjoy. You see, the reality is God had not forgotten them, but they had forgotten God. Not only that, they could not see clearly their own situation because during this time, God was continuing to provide manna from heaven six days a week. God had provided for them quail to eat, and yet they could not see any of it. All they could focus on was their problem. Brothers and sisters, when we accuse God, we are no different than Israel. We are a forgetful people. We are an oblivious people. 
I mean, how many days of your life has God provided food for you? How many days of your life has God provided shelter for you? How many days of your life has God kept you alive? 50%? And yet we stub our toe and curse his name. Do you see how foolish this is? We forget the millions of ways that God has and is providing for us. And we focus on the one thing that we want that isn't there at that current time. And we lobby accusations against God. When we go through trials, we question his goodness. We accuse him of neglect. You know, I've told people before, it's okay to be angry with God. He can handle it. But you know what? I don't think it is okay to be angry with God. If you are angry with God, be honest about it. Tell God he can handle it. Repent of it. But it's not okay to be angry with God. Because God is your loving Heavenly Father who cares for you and delights in you and is generous to you. Now, I want to make sure before we move on to the next point that you don't hear what I'm not saying. When we go through trials in this life, it is good to cry out to God with honest questions and genuine requests. That is a good thing. That's what he wants. But there is a massive difference between humbly asking God your questions or for clarity or for help or for strength and accusing God of wrongdoing. One comes from a heart of faith and humility and the other out of a heart of bitter rebellion. And so in our trials, we must cry out to God for strength, cry out to God for help, and cry out to God in faith. So that is the prosecution. That is their accusations. Next, we turn to the defense. Look in verse 5. The defense are those that are protecting the accused. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hands the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. In ancient Israel, the assembly of elders was the group that would pass judgment in a court hearing. And so Moses brings together the jury and makes them follow him wherever he's going. And then we read verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you, says the Lord, there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. In this verse... God does something amazing. He does something humiliating. When God says to Moses, I will stand before you, not only is God saying, I will be your defense attorney, but God is saying, I will put myself on trial before these people. God did not need to enter into the trial. God could have just punished the people. God could have brought justice upon the people. But rather, God accommodates his people and loves his people and shows himself to his people. Phil Riken commenting on this passage shows the absurdity of God putting himself on trial. He puts it this way. He says, Rephidim was supposed to be a place of testing, not for God, but for his people. They were the ones on trial. A part of their ongoing spiritual education, he wanted to see if they would trust him to provide living water. But they were tired of being tested. They wanted to ask the questions, not answer them. So they charge God with breaking his covenant. You know, in scripture, 
It's always the lesser that stands before the greater. The servant that would stand before the master and take his direction. The peasant that would stand before the king to take his instruction. Even the accused that would stand before the judge to take their verdict. But here, the creator of the universe agrees to stand before his creation. The God of the universe stands trial on Moses' behalf and in Moses' defense. And then Moses goes and does what God commands and strikes the rock and water comes out and God is acquitted on all accounts. God once again has proved himself not to be neglectful, but tactical in his provision. God has proved himself again to not be treasonous, but faithful to his promises. And God has once again proved himself not to be absent, but an ever-present help in times of trouble. You know, we have seen this repeated passage, this repeated pattern over the past four chapters. A problem comes up, Israel grumbles, and God responds with grace. And we can look at this pattern, we can say, look, this is what we should do. We should grumble against God, and he will bless us. But it's not what God is trying to communicate at all. What God is communicating in this pattern is that it's always been about grace. That God blesses his people, not because they are an obedient people. The law hasn't, been, hasn't come yet. And he doesn't bless them because they are a thankful people, because often we grumble and we whine and we complain. But God is gracious to his people because he loves his people. And he loves to pour out grace upon them. Last month, my kids and I sat down at the computer and we were looking at different playgrounds to potentially order. And so we finally found one and we ordered it and we had to wait for it for a couple of weeks and the kids were very excited to get the playground and finally it came in two huge boxes. And so we picked it up and we took it to our backyard and we put all the wood pieces all around the yard and pulled the bolts out and put them all over the trailer. And we put the, the playground together. It took four days, four days to put together this playground. <laughs> and as we wrapped up and I was carrying the tools back to my shop, one of the kids said to me, the monkey bars aren't very long. Like most monkey bars have more bars. It's, it's longer, like kids can go further on it. And I thought to myself, I have a chainsaw. I can make them shorter right? Then they won't complain so much. I'm so glad that God is not like me. God responds to grumbling and ingratitude with grace. This isn't to spur us on to grumbling for God's mercy and kindness is to lead us to repentance, but it's to show us it's all about God's grace, that God loves his kids no matter what they do. And he delights to pour out grace upon them. And so the plaintiff, grumbling Israel, accuses God and Moses of neglect, treason, and abandonment. The defense, God stands before Moses and Israel and clears himself of all charges by providing water. But there is one more person in this case. The rock. Not Dwayne Wade, if you're, or sorry, not Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Wade, he's a rock too, or Alcatraz. But the rock there at Meribah. If you would, read along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
It should be on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians 10.1, the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthians, For I want you to know, brothers, talking to the Christians at Corinth, also Christians today, that our fathers, speaking of the Israelites, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses, united to him, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, manna. And then here's the part that is important for us today. Verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. What does it mean that the rock was Christ. Well, in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as a rock. In Genesis and in Isaiah, God was called the rock of Israel. In Deuteronomy, the rock was God whose works were perfect. In Psalms, God is the rock who is a fortress and refuge. In Psalms and Deuteronomy, God is the rock of our salvation. And so in a way, Paul is saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the rock. But keeping that in mind, we look back at verse 5 through 6 in our passage today, and we see Moses get some very specific and very interesting commands from God. Verse 5 again, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. We already covered that part. And he says, And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. This word struck is translated in the King James Version as smite. It can also be translated to slay or to kill. In fact, this is the word used when Moses strikes an Egyptian soldier and that soldier dies. And so this term to strike is a very violent term that often brought suffering and death. And the fact that God pairs it with Moses' staff is to recall to us the first plague in which Moses, following God's command, takes the staff and strikes the water of the Nile. And it brings death and judgment as the water turns red. We move forward, verse 6, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock just as he struck the Nile. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Why did God want Moses to strike the rock? Why not just hold the staff over the rock or wave his arms over the rock or just speak to the rock and say, water, come out? Why did he want him to strike the rock? It's because God wanted to show his people the gospel. God wanted to show his people the good news of the Savior that was to come. You see, many years later, the rock, Jesus Christ, would be struck again. This time, not by Moses, but by God himself. And like in Exodus 6, 17, Christ the rock would stand trial. And although he would be declared innocent, he would be sentenced to death for the very ones that he came to save. And on the cross, Christ stood before us and was struck with the rod of divine judgment in our place, the rod which we deserved for our sins. Christ stood trial before men and took the rod of divine judgment so that when we stand before God, he can say, it is finished. 
It is taken care of. It is accomplished. The punishment has been served. And so we see again the plaintiff grumbling Israel, lobbying charges at God himself. The defense, God stands before Moses and on behalf of Moses and acquits and shows grace through pouring out water. And then we see the rock, which is Christ. And just as the rock was struck with the rod of God's justice, so Christ the rock will be struck for our salvation and for our deliverance and for our refreshment. Let me end with this. I don't know if you've ever seen those Snickers commercials that say, you're not you when you're hungry. You know, there's one with Betty White and there's some other ones. One of my favorites was the one that played during the Super Bowl this year. It was at the Brady Bunch house. Maybe you remember this. And there is this, this huge guy with this vest on and no shirt. And he is angry and he's spewing and he has a broken nose. And, and you see him standing there before Mr. and Mrs. Brady. And they're trying to console him. And they say to him, Marsha, eat your Snickers. And the man says, Why? And Miss Brady says, you get a little hostile when you're angry. And he takes a bite of the Snickers and turns into this sweet Marsha girl again. And the point of the ad is, eat this and you will be satisfied. But the problem is, the hunger always comes back. Some of you are here today, and if you were honest, you would say, I'm angry with God. I'm mad with God. Maybe God took away one of your loved ones before you had wished. Maybe your life had turned out differently than you wanted. Maybe you just feel like your life is incomplete. But the good news is that the rock Jesus Christ was struck, not just to take away our punishment when we stand before God, which is true, but the rock was struck to satisfy our souls. See, if you are angry with God, if you are putting God on trial, the reason is because your soul is not satisfied. The reason is because you think God has withheld something from you that you need. But the good news is that God has provided for all our needs. He's provided for our thirsty soul and the rock, Jesus Christ. Verse 6 again, God says, You shall strike the rock, the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God not only provides salvation from our sins, but he provides satisfaction for our souls. In John chapter 4, the story of Jacob's well, there's a woman there who had gone from man to man to man looking for satisfaction for her soul. And Jesus comes to her and he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, talking about the water at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A few chapters later in John chapter 7, Jesus continues and says, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Jesus would be glorified in his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. But you see, the, the rivers, the streams, the waters of life would not flow until the rock was struck down. If you're here today and you are thirsty, your soul is panting for more. And you look and look and look for satisfaction. Drink from a rock. Drink from the rock, Jesus Christ. Drink long. Drink hard. Drink deep. He will quench your thirst. He will give you spiritual hydration. He will satisfy your soul. Come to the rock and drink the living water. And you will never be thirsty again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your provision of the rock, both at Meribah, but also at Calvary, to satisfy our thirsty souls and to provide for our salvation. Lord, remind us of your goodness and grace. Remind us of your tender care for us. And Lord, forgive us for looking and drinking from other places that do not satisfy. Remind us to drink from the rock, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.